0: Today we deal with probably one of the biggest landmines there is. If you want to uh, cause a party to end, if you want uh, to create an issue, all you need to do is bring up religion and politics. And that usually gets people rolling their eyes and and heading for the exits. And this morning we're going to talk about that. How does our religion engage with the politics of the world around us. Now politics isn't something that is new. It's not something that was created uh, by American culture. It wasn't created by the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, politics have been around since the beginning of man and the beginning of government. And the Bible talks about politics over and over again whether it was the nation of Israel choosing uh, what type of government they were going to have whether they would rule themselves or be ruled by God or or be ruled by a king. Politics was a part of the Old Testament life of the Israelites. We also see that politics can have a lot of intrigue to it when we see the the conflicting kingdoms, if you will, of uh, King Saul and King David. And then we know that politics were a part of the division of the nation of Israel, where there was a northern kingdom and and a southern kingdom. Uh, Politics in the Old Testament uh, was all over the place in the Bible but probably more uh, clearly seen in the area of biblical politics was uh, the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Politics are a part of the last moments of Jesus' life here on earth. We have the religious leaders trying to garner political favor with Rome, making sure that they uh, have all their ducks in a row. They don't like this upstart Jesus, and so they want him off of the political landscape. And then you've got Pontius Pilate, and he's concerned about the Roman effect and and concerned about the turmoil that could come as a result of a a, uh, religious uprising that would take place. The last moments of Jesus' life are steeped in politics and the intrigue that comes with it. There's conniving, there's scheming, and all throughout church history and even into the 21st century, politics has become a way of of life and we need to recognize this morning that politics impacts all of what we do But I'm so thankful that just in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament God's plans and his purposes supersede politics It wasn't politics that got Jesus into trouble It was God who had prepared in advance that his son was going to go to the cross and he used The politics of the day to be the mechanism by which he would allow his plans and purposes To be played forth so listen this morning when we talk about politics. We're not talking about Fox News or CNN or MSNBC We're not talking Democrats and Republicans because well before that politics has been a part of The human experience and the problem is is that Christians we need to ask the question this morning. How do we? navigate politics as a follower of Jesus Christ How do we engage in politics without losing our testimony? How do we involve ourselves in the political landscape in a way that would honor and glorify God and be of help to our neighbors and to our community? Those are the questions we want to answer. Now, I'll be honest with you, I love politics. My favorite show of all time uh, was the show from a, about a decade ago, The West Wing, following the, the life and times of the office of president and and those that worked with him. And I love that program. Most of my favorite movies are political dramas that center around Washington, D.C. and 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 the thrilling uh, way of seeing government work. Most of my favorite biographies are of presidents and, and statesmen. I, I love politics, but can I be honest with you this morning? I'm really starting to not like them as much as I used to There used to be honor and respect. It was never perfect. It was never um, uh, immune to all of the intrigue and all of that. There was always difficulties and struggles in politics, but it seems that it's gotten more and more nasty. And as a result, for many, politics is something that you want to steer clear of. You don't want any involvement with it, and that's not a good place. Nor is it right and good for us as Christians to think that politics is the end game that we're all shooting for. That it's through our politics that we're going to affect change in the world around us. And so we need balance. To be able to disarm this landmine in a way that we can use it for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Politics has been defined in two ways one in a funny one, and then one more seriously. It has been said that politics is the compound of two words poly, which means many, and ticks, which are blood sucking creatures. <laughs> I'll leave that with you. The Cambridge Dictionary isn't as funny. It defines politics as the science, the science by which we address our opinions on how a people should be governed. That's a good definition. Because I want you to recognize this morning at the heart of politics is opinion. It's opinion. So when we enter into the, uh, the uh, coliseum of political thinking, we are working off of a place of opinion. And our opinion is going to be based or is going to be superimposed on how we think a group of people should be governed. And so this morning I want to talk about American politics because if we were to go to European politics, it would be different. If we were to go to African politics, it would be different. If we were to go to Southeast Asia and do their politics, it would be different. We're going to deal with American politics. And we're going to ask the question, how do I express my opinion on how I believe our country should be governed? That's at the heart of politics. When you enter into a political conversation, you are entering into a conversation where you are articulating your opinion. It may be a good opinion. It may be a wise opinion. Or it could be a terrible one. You're entering into politics, and here's the thing. Every part of our daily life is intertwined with politics. This morning, I was pulling out of my driveway onto my street in Hinkley, and we've had a lot of rain and all of that, and, and my street, little by little, over the 20 years I've been there, has gotten more and more like a gravel road than it has a paved road. And I pulled out and I hit a pothole That caused my steering wheel to turn violently, and you know what I did? I had a political conversation with nameless people who run the city of (laughs) Hinckley. They gotta fix this. What are they doing? Where are they wasting their money? Why are they not addressing this? I did not buy a house on a gravel road. I bought it on a paved road. Let's pave the stupid road. It's as small as that. We do things of politics. But even on the bigger stuff... Issues of life and death, politics are being done. And we're expressing opinions about how we think people should uh, be governed, how money should be used, and the like. Now the question is, what type of politician you're going to be? What type of political uh, mind are you going to have? Are you going to have one that is absent of God and devoid of biblical reasoning? Or will you have one that uh, models... What Christ has shown us, that models what the biblical uh, parameters of good discourse and discussion look like. Here's the problem for us as Christians, and this is so very important for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Because when you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are taking Christ into your world. So when you go to work, Christ is coming with you as a bearer of the name of Jesus. Christ is coming with you. And so how you act in your workplace is going to show people what Christ is like, how you uh, interact with your family, how you make decisions about money and, and finances as Jesus is brought with you. We can't separate ourselves from Jesus, but when it comes to politics, we separate Jesus from us all the time. And we begin to share our opinion on a manner, uh, all myriad of situations and scenarios politically, and we forget to bring Jesus with us. But here's the problem when we say we're Christ followers and enter into political conversations, even though we leave Jesus out of it, the people we're having those discussions with think Jesus is in the room. And what begins to happen is they say, well, Tim says he's a Christ follower, and what he says about this situation, that's my, what Jesus must feel. That's what Jesus must be thinking. And so if we're going to bring Jesus into the room with regards to our politics, then Jesus should have a vested interest in what we are going to say. And so how do we go about seeing that played out? This morning we want to look at Jeremiah 29. We want to deal with Jeremiah 29. Now as you are turning there this morning, I want you to recognize something so important with regards to politics. Politics within the American experience is a scale, and it's a scale that's weighing two things down, and they're never in balance with one another, because what politics is doing here in the United States, we've been endowed both by our Creator and the Founding Fathers for the right of freedom and the ability to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that's a problem. There's now over 300 million Americans in the United States. And so all of us have been given the right to the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, here's the problem. My pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is going to mean certain things for me. The scale goes down. But as the scale goes down, the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for others may all of a sudden go up. And what's happening is, is as I pursue my rights, my freedoms, my desires of what America can be, I need to recognize there's a counterweight that's moving against others. And so we have this great experiment called the American Experience that we've got to figure out, how do I get the most of my freedoms without impinging or infringing on the rights of others? It is that scale where the debate is taking place. Both sides of the aisle want some level of freedom, but they're going to say, but if you get this freedom, you take away freedom to this group of people. And then this group of people says, but I want freedom over here, which infringes upon my freedom and the balance and the game starts to be played. So we need clarity. We need someone to come and articulate what we're supposed to do and how we're to do it because some people, quite frankly, don't want nothing to do with the political movement at all. And other people have staked their whole claim that the political movement is the way that we're going to affect change as Christians. Neither of them are right. So we turn to Jeremiah 29 this morning. For many, you know Jeremiah 29. You've got it written somewhere in a picture or on your wall. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, give you a future and a hope. Many don't have any idea of what comes before the text. We're going to deal with that famous verse, but we're going to deal with what comes before it. And I'm going to tell you that this morning, you're going to see how an Old Testament passage has great value To our life and times in the world today, we live in a political time. We live in a time where at best Culture is indifferent to who we are as believers at worst, They're completely hostile towards us And so how are we to live? How are we as Christians to now be the minority instead of the majority? What are we to do? How are we to affect change? Well, Jeremiah 29 is going to give us some great timeless truths that will help us to Uh, Be able to understand it, but let's understand a couple things about jeremiah 29 verses 1 through 2 1 through 3 of jeremiah 29 We have a context the people of god Have been brought into exile and jeremiah the prophet Is going to write a letter now what caused the exile? Well, the babylonian empire one of the largest empires in human history has come and has taken over all of israel And in doing so, they've ransacked the cities of Jerusalem, and they do this on three different occasions. So they come in, like most invading armies, they destroy the cities, they tell everybody who's boss, and then uh, they leave town. And they do that on three occasions, but on the third occasion, they come in, and what they do is they ransack the city, and what they do is they exile people, that is, they force a migration of Israelite people from Israel. To northern uh, modern day Iraq. And so they say, You're going to go and you're going to live with us. But who do they take? They take the best of the best, the smartest, the brightest, the greatest craftsmen, because they want them to build the cities of Babylon to make them a-, a prize of great worth. And so they take all of the best of Israel and they ship them to Iraq. But then what they do is they take a whole bunch of Babylonians and they say, Hey, new property out west. It's called Israel. A lot of land, a lot of farms, a lot of opportunity. Why don't you go and inhabit there? Now, there's a reason for this decision they make. Babylon was smart. What they said is, listen, if we want to have these outskirts of our uh, empire to be filled with our enemies, we will only produce trouble as a result. They're going to be mad. We've taken them over. They're going to rebel against us. So what we're going to do is we're going to infiltrate their communities and we're going to put our Babylonian people there who are loyal to us, who have our customs and have our decrees and they're gonna go live in the Israelite land and they're gonna help to squelch if you will any kind of uprising that would take place and this allows the Babylonians for some time to rule and reign over Israel we're gonna learn for 70 years they're gonna hold this land called Israel and so now thousands upon thousands of the best of the Israelites are making their way to Babylon And the question is, how are they to live? Are they to revolt? Are they to just go into caves and and cry and, and moan about how bad life is? What are they supposed to do when the culture around them is antithetical to everything they know and understand? Well, you begin to think that way. Jeremiah 29 seems to look very much like the 21st century of America. And here is what Jeremiah says that he hears from the Lord starting in verse 4 he says thus saith the Lord of hosts the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and It will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's stop there. There are four things this morning that I want to draw from. My first one's going to be by far the longest. But there are four truths that I want you to understand that we can learn from this text. First of all, we need to understand that amidst a political landmine of the culture we're in today, we need to play our part in culture. We need to play our part in culture. When it comes to engagement within politics, there are many different ways that you can go, and if I was to poll this group of people, there are no doubt people in all of the categories that I'm going to share, and the reason why is there's a lot of good reasons as to why we may want to do what we're doing with regards to politics and with regards to the culture that we're living in. So let's dig down into each of these and see some of the good and some of the bad that comes with this type of thing. And the first way that we can engage our culture is not to engage in it at all, and that is doing in a pursuit of isolation. We find ourselves in isolation. What isolation represents is a complete withdrawal from the community and culture around us, as Christians, we read Second Corinthians six seventeen that says, "Come out from their midst and be separate from them." And we take Paul's words and we say, "Listen, as Christians, we are to have zero engagement with the community or culture around us." And there's good reason as to why that's the case. And the reason why is culture is sick. Culture has an illness, and the culture's illness is contagious. It gets good people sick. And so what we're going to do is we're going to isolate ourselves from any kind of involvement with culture because we don't want to get sick. Now there's some value to that kind of approach. Number one, isolation offers a clear distinction between Christianity and culture. It creates a dividing line that says, that's culture and this is the church. And there's important things. It's never good for the church and the culture to merge together because culture will always inevitably win out. But neither is it okay for the church never to be a part of culture at all or for Christians never to be a part of culture because in that then, how will they know if they never hear? How will they know if they've never seen? And so we have to engage culture, but isolationists say, no, we don't need to do that. We need to create a distinctive, a dividing line between us and them. Finally, it keeps us from any corruption. You can't get sick if you're in a different area code of the people that have the contagion. And so it takes care of that. And the idea is the culture's philosophy cannot and will not influence our thinking if we're able to avoid culture altogether. And so you'll see that some of it. You'll see isolation from people that have made the isolation um, a geographical thing and so um, we had uh, a person years ago, it's been probably 10, 12 years, uh, a member of our church that uh, wanted to pursue isolation, and they got a cabin out in Montana, and they're living out in Montana right now, and the reason why they've done it is they said, listen, I want my family and myself, We we don't want to fall into the problems of culture, and so we're going to find a place where we have 150 acres and no one's going to bother us, okay? But I want you to know isolation doesn't happen just geographically. It happens in the sense where we just start living life totally apart and outside of anything that culture is doing. But then there's a second one. Isolation isn't the right answer. How about insulation? Insulation. Insulation represents not a complete withdrawal, but the process of seemingly doing what scripture says, being in the world and not of the world. It seems to be the middle ground, but here's the problem. Insulation has an inherent problem with it, because it says, okay, I can't isolate myself from the world, so what I'll do is I'll put on protective gear that keeps me from really having to touch. i got to be in the same room as the people, but I don't have to touch them, do I? And so what happens is, is Christians put on hazmat suits, you know what I'm talking about? Those nuclear radiation suits, those big yellow suits with the big uh, sc- um, shields on the faces and the hoods and all of that, and nothing can touch them. Nothing can get in. Nothing can penetrate them, but here's the problem. You're in the room, and nothing can touch you. You can't be corrupted, but the problem is, is are you really doing life when everybody else has got just their clothes on, and you walk in like Darth Vader, breathing heavy, <sighs> Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't get too close. There's radioactivity going on here. And you're walking around with your little meter, too much radioactivity. I've got to keep the suit on. And you're going about life and you wonder why people think you're odd. Well, you're the only guy in the office or in the school or in the neighborhood walking around with a hazmat suit on. And they're wondering where the toxic spill took place. And when they ask, you say, well, you're the toxic spill. You're the reason I'm wearing this suit. And so many of us today, here at Village Bible Church, are looking and engaging culture. And you're thinking, I'm in the world and I'm, I'm not of the world But you're not affecting any change because you're the guy who's wearing the hazmat suit when nobody else is They're like why does this guy celebrate Halloween, and why does he wear the same outfit every day? Well, he says he's a Christ follower And Christ followers want to create a distance between the lost world and themselves. Do you see the problem? So insulation isn't the answer maybe it's vegetation and I don't mean vegetation in a positive growth way I mean dead near dead and that is some of you find yourself so tired of the political process so tired of culture that you would just rather just unconsciously go through life and say, listen, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to, first of all, I'm not going to isolate myself. That doesn't work. And, and I'm not going to um, put on a hazmat suit every time I go into the community. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to be numb to everything. And so I'm not going to do anything of any value for Christianity in my community or in my workplace. But I'm not also going to be engaged in any way with the people. I'm going to be near dead. I'm going to be unconscious. Walk through life in this way. And the problem is, is we have not been called to an unconscious uh, life with culture. God has called us to go and make disciples, to be forward thinking, to be aggressive in our desire, not our tactics, but our desire to see people come into the kingdom of God. We need to be on the move for that, not nearly dead. I'm going to add one real quick for you. If it's not isolation or insulation, and if it's not vegetation, is it domination? Write that one down. So there's some that are sitting there going, you know what? I'm tired of culture, I'm tired of being pushed around. We used to be the important people in the world. America used to be a Christian nation, and we need to get back there. And we're going to do everything in our power to get people to do that. And so we're going to legislate all kinds of things that are important to us. We're going to push for all kinds of measures that are important to us, and we don't care the impact that it has on people. We don't care if they're happy or unhappy about it. We are going to do everything we can because it's right. The Bible says that we are to live this way, and so we're going to force everybody in our culture to live this way. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus never did that. Nowhere do you ever see Jesus coercing unbelievers into righteous living. Does he call them to change? Yes. But he never forces them to do it. Jesus never. Now, here's the crazy thing. Jesus was God. He could have forced anybody to do anything. But he didn't. He never forced, and our job is not to coerce or dominate people into the kingdom of God. Our job is to invite them into the kingdom of God. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden, can find rest in the arms and salvation of Jesus Christ and him alone. And so domination isn't the way to do it. So if we think, well, if we get the right people on the Supreme Court, if we get the right people in the Oval Office, if we get the right people in Congress, then our day will come. Well, listen. Listen very carefully. No matter what's going on in Washington, D.C., the Christian's day has come because God is always on his throne. Amen? So it's none of these things. Then what in the world is it when it comes to culture? Permeation. Permeation. Notice verses 4 through 7 of Jeremiah 29. Notice what he doesn't say. Okay, you're in exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel to all the exiles who I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Notice what he says find a cave Find a cave and have nothing to do with the Babylonians, right? That's what verse 5 says. Nope Notice what it says to all the exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon get your hazmat suit ready Don't let the Babylonian ooze get on you no, doesn't say that. Verse 5. And then he said to the exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon, shrivel up and die. All hope is gone. You'll never see your house again. Don't say that. Oh, oh, I see what he says. He says to the exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon, rally the troops. Start revolution. Let them feel the pain of taking us over. Right? No. What does he say build houses and live in them? Plant gardens and eat their produce Take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage That they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile stop there The job of the Christian in culture is to permeate culture. Well, what does that look like? It doesn't sound very spiritual. It's called living life. Live life. Live life in your community. Live life with your family. Have a family. Raise your family. Go to work. Uh, Enjoy the fruits of your labor. And, And what does all this involve? It involves you seeking something. The multiplication of those who affirm what you affirm. But notice it's not a hostile takeover. It is through multiplication. Live life and show people why your way of living, through example, through modeling, is the way to live. Now notice what he says. All of this should not just impact you, but it should seek the welfare of the city that you live in. And so what our job is to permeate culture is to live life as individuals, not fighting culture and and screaming at culture of how bad it is, but to live life amidst culture and to do everything that we can to make the culture around us say, I'm glad so-and-so lives next door to me and loves Jesus. Because we're a better place as a result of it. Can your employer say tomorrow, I'm glad you're... One of my employees and a, are a follower of Jesus Christ because you're one less person I have to worry that will steal from me. Students, can you say, can your school say, boy, we're glad that we have so-and-so in our school and they're a follower of Jesus Christ because it's one less kid that we've got to worry about the shenanigans that students do. They're a model. Can your neighborhood say, boy, we're glad we got the Johnsons in our neighborhood? And they love Jesus, and we don't get it. They go to church every week, we don't understand that, but we're sure glad they're here, because they look after us, and they care for us, and they, they love us. Are we seeking the welfare of our city? Your pastor is never prouder than when I run into someone who's in your inner circle, whether at work or in your community, and the person that I run into, I say, oh, I, I, I have a, a parishioner, I have a, a church member that, that works in your office, and... And the response is, man, great guy, isn't he? Great lady. Oh, I have someone in my church that lives in your subdivision. Oh, they're great people. Wonderful people. We don't worry when our kids are over at their house. They're, they, they, they do it right. That's permeating the community. Now, listen, that's slow. That's arduous. That at times is difficult because the ooze gets on us and we don't like it and we we want to just jump out of it listen I'm a parent I get it I totally understand it but this is how God wants us to change culture notice he hasn't used any of the other things he says live life amongst the people and do it well now now notice there's a a second element there he says I want you to seek the welfare for your city verse 7 How do we do that? Notice what he says. He says, you do that by praying, verse 7, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. So the way that we do it, the way we play our part in culture, is we take our culture, our community, to the Lord in prayer. And so we need to be active in prayer. Listen to me very carefully. If you are doing more politics than praying, your politics are futile. Because what you're doing is you're saying, God, the way we're going to change culture means you've got to get out of the way and DC's got to get involved. But prayer says, God, you're the one alone who can change the culture, who can change my community. No law can do that. No president can do that no governor can do that no village official can do that God only you can and so I'm coming to the one who is able to address the issues and the concerns I have about the culture around me now What are we to pray for notice? We are to pray for it's good so that takes away the ability for us to pray against the culture and I know we we have those kinds of prayers, right? When we pray condemnation upon people, we get angry, we get frustrated, and we want to pray condemnation. God says, I want you to pray for its welfare, because as you pray for the city's welfare, you too will be taken care of. Because as I bring rain upon the unbeliever, I'm bringing rain upon you, the believer. And so both are going to share in this blessing. Now, what are we to pray for with regards to the welfare of the city? Well, number one, before we pray for culture... Listen, we need to pray for ourselves, and that is we need to pray for forgiveness. Because right away, the people that are in exile from Israel, do you think that they like the Babylonians? Think about this. Think Indiana comes and invades Illinois. Now, why would Indiana want to do that? I don't know, but let's say they did. And Indiana says, we're going to take you out of Sugar Sugar Grove, and we're going to take you to uh, um, Terre Haute. It's going to be your new home in Terre Haute, and you're going to live life like we do in Indiana. You're going to pay taxes like we do, and you're going to do jobs like we do, and this is your job, okay? We might like that, right? Bad illustration. Okay? So let's say the taxes are higher in Indiana, okay? (laughs) Okay? And their politicians don't all go to jail, right? <laughs> and we're set up in Terre Haute. Do You think we're liking the people from Indiana right now? No, they robbed us of our lives. They've taken away our ability to live life. What we were doing, we, we were building a life here in Illinois, and now it's been stolen from us. And you would imagine that the prayer would be, we hate the Indiana people. We despise them. Lord, strike them down. They're a bad people. But God reminds them that it isn't the Babylonians who brought this situation upon them. It was God. Notice in the phrase, God takes ownership of this. Verse 4. To all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Go on and he says... Uh, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile Wait a minute Who sent us there? God did Verse 14 I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you into exile The Babylonians aren't to blame for the exile God is God says, I'm the one who allowed the Babylonians to rise up. I'm the one who has allowed the Babylonians to cause you pain and turmoil. I am the one who has allowed culture to turn on you. Why would the God of the universe, the God of righteousness and justice and truth, allow bad things to happen to good people? Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Deuteronomy. This is so important. Because what we do with politics is we go after culture and we say it's culture's fault How dare you culture? How dare you take away the good life we were living? How dare you culture go after these sins and these pursuits? Deuteronomy 29 starting in verse 24 It says this all the nations will say of Israel why has the Lord done this to this land What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people, that is the outsiders of Israel, will say, it's because Israel abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers which they had made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Israel went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and and whom they had had not been allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against the land, Israel. Bringing upon it all the curses written in this book and the Lord uprooted the Israelites from their land in Anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day Why are they in exile? Not because of bad people The Babylonians aren't to blame the Israelites were God said, I promise you a land. And if you stay true to my word and true to my decrees, then this land flowing with milk and honey, it's yours. But if you start playing games and not following my decrees, then other armies will come in and they will devour any good that you've got going on. And that's what they did, and that's how God responds. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, very carefully. It is not culture's fault that we find ourselves in the place that we are. The reason why culture is where it is today is because good people have stopped serving the Lord as we're called to. And we've become a part of the culture. And we're mad that culture now has run amok. And at some point, we made decisions that instead of standing for truth, we'd start believing lies. Instead of standing for God, we started believing in ourselves. And and as a result of that, the church lost its testimony in the world And now other opinions begin to sprout up. So what do we need to do? We need to seek forgiveness. Lord, we have failed you. Not culture. Lord, us. We have failed you. We have not done what is right in your eyes. And so we've blown it. And we ask for forgiveness. Heal our land. Forgive us of our sins. If my people who are called by my name will confess their sins and call out to me, he says, I'll heal their land. But we're too busy. We've got other things to worry about. The American dream is more important than seeing America come to Christ. And so we're busy going about doing our things, not thinking that King Jesus wants to rule and reign in America as he is in the heavenly realms, because we don't want King Jesus ruling in our America, and that's the Christian talking. Because if I have Jesus ruling and reigning, the Christian American dream that I've got is out the window. And so if I can somehow live the American dream along with the Christian dream and long as those two things don't meet together, then I can live pretty happily in my upper middle class life. Then I can enjoy life in such a way that I don't have to engage my culture or tell people that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because I can just make myself look like the rest of them. We need to pray for forgiveness. Then and only then might God be uh, open to changing the culture if we would... Only long and desire that Number two, we need to pray for faithful leaders Within the welfare of the city are the leaders of the city. Well, who's the leader of the city? It's Nebuchadnezzar. He's pretty bad In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's probably One of the worst of all the leaders in human history It seems that God really doesn't like Nebuchadnezzar all that much because Nebuchadnezzar stands opposed to God every step of the way and yet it's pretty awesome that at some point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he sees the wrath of God in his life and he comes to a place of repentance. though it's short-lived, he repents. And it no doubt is because through the prayers of these people, praying for leaders, well the New Testament tells us to pray, that we are to raise up prayers and supplications and intercessions for all those who are in authority. First Timothy chapter two. We are to pray. We are to pray that we might have good and godly men and women leading our country and our counties and our states and our local municipalities. But we also need, listen, fervency. We need fervency. Forgiveness, faithful leaders, and fervency. Have you ever thought that one way that you can change culture, one way that you can change government is to be a part of it? is to engage in the process more than just simply voting. That's great. But engaging in the process more and more. For a long time, I've lived all my life in the city of Hinkley. I love Hinkley. I pray for the welfare of the city of Hinckley. And for years, I thought that's all I needed to do. I'm doing my job. I'm praying and I'm serving. I'm sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the Lord threw a curve to me. He said, I want you to do something more. And he gave me this heart to engage in something that I didn't have time to do or the energy to do. And I kept pushing it away, saying, Lord, that's not what you want me to do. But the Lord, about six years ago, said, I think you should serve on the school board. What? I don't need any more meetings. Amanda wants to see me at some point in this thing that we call our marriage. i got to be around for this. And I will tell you, As much as I feel called right now to be your pastor, I sense that same calling to serve as a school board member in the Hinkley Big Rock Board of Education. And I'll tell you what, God has given me more avenues to share the good welfare of our God into the city than I would have ever gotten outside of that that role and responsibility. We need people serving in these ways. We need people serving as coaches. We need people serving as room moms. We need people that are serving on local village boards and county boards. We need people serving in our state legislature. We need people serving as congressmen and congresswomen. We need judges and we need all manner, all the way up to the Oval Office, good and godly people rising up. And we've got the great freedom to do it. You want to affect change? Engage in that. Use your gifts, use your ability, use the mind that God's given you to engage in that. Is it, listen to me, the only answer? Is it the supreme answer to our culture's problems? No, but it does help to seek the welfare of the city. And you know, when I serve in my local school board, I'm serving my family. My kids that are in that school, I'm, I'm ministering to them. I'm making sure that things are done in an orderly way. I'm making sure that things are done in a way that uh, will help the community. And so think about that. How can you serve? How can you engage? Now, it involves something. Notice verses 8 and 9. We need to be prudent. I'm going to move quickly now. We need to be prudent as we consider our engagement. So, verse eight and nine, we've got a problem. Jeremiah says, "Okay, I want you to do all these things, uh, seek the welfare of the city, but be careful. Do not let your prophets and your diviners, who are among you, deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie. But they are prophesying to you to you in my name. I did not send them," declares the Lord. Here was what was going on: there were prophets that were coming from Israel, and they were telling the exiles not to listen to Jeremiah but they were telling them that the people in Israel were under great duress, which wasn't the case. In fact, they were having children, they were planting vineyards, they were living a life of peace, even though the culture was against them. But there were people that were riling them up. Oh, if you only knew what was going on in Israel, it's terrible. So rise up, exiles, and let's fight the power, and let's go after it. Can I tell you something? Uh, Whether we like it or not, on both sides of the aisle, uh, can we not say of verse 8 and 9 that that's a lot of our talking heads that talk politically today? They're working us up into a world. Things are terrible. Things are brutal. And sometimes they are, but have you noticed in our 24-hour news cycle, everything is breaking news? Have you noticed that? Everything's an emergency. Every day we turn on the TV and I'm watching it with you. And it doesn't matter, liberal, conservative. Every time the big band noise comes in of music and it says, breaking news. What happened? Well, the president had lunch today. (laughs) Breaking news. Congress had a meeting today. Breaking news. Everything's breaking news. Well, back not too long ago, breaking news meant something... Big was happening. But we have been brought into this life where everything is an emergency. And it's not. It's not. And these people were being worked up into a world that there was an emergency. And notice what he says. They are prophesying to you in my name. Be very, very careful, Christians, that you're not being played by both sides of the aisle. Both sides of the aisle want you to think that they're with us. And I'll tell you something, be wary, and ask good and hard questions, because usually politics and faith mean one of the other is going to be king. And very rarely is it faith, very rarely. If you can find a politician who puts his faith first, God bless him. But usually it's politics, that's why politics makes for strange bedfellows. So he says it's a lie. They are not prophesying my name. I did not send them declares the Lord So we've got to be prudent. We have got to be prudent in understanding this So how are we prudent a couple practical things? We're talking about politics. So let's talk politics number one When it comes to politics be informed on the issues be informed on the issues when a bill passes don't take your your view from a one-minute blurb from Facebook Read the bill. Read the bill. Boy, if our politicians would know that. We passed 2,000 pages of legislation, and the Speaker of the House at the time said, uh, we'll have time to read it after we sign it. Universal sign of disapproval. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Come on. We're better than that. But Christians, don't get mad at politicians who don't read the bill when we don't read it. What is this bill going to mean? Now I want you to read it, listen, looking at it, not only through your lens, that's the first thing you should do, how does this affect me, that's okay and right to do, but how does it then affect others? Because I'm called to not only love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I'm also to love my neighbor as myself, and so I need to ask the question, how would my neighbor feel as he's reading this bill? Is there value to him? Is there good for him? Or am I some some way dominating my neighbor without even knowing it? Understand the issues. Now listen, Christian. Issues, in the political sense, most of them are deeper than a one-minute soundbite. And so these are big issues, and they affect lots of people. And it's okay to have a view, and it's okay to, to believe in something. But, but recognize and know you need to do your homework. Because these issues are complicated. Nothing more frustrating as a pastor than when someone takes a deep theological issue that I've studied my life with and someone brings it down and says, no, you're not right. Here's my one word or one sentence answer for it. na na boo boo Are you kidding me? That's the mind of God that you've put into a 20-second soundbite. Good luck with that. So we've got to recognize these issues aren't easy. They're complicated. They involve lots of people. Number two... When we have to debate, debate civilly, don't just criticize. When you find yourself in a debate or a political issue, don't demagogue, don't demonize. Don't do that stuff. That's not kind. If you've got an issue with someone and their politics, speak to their politics. Address the issue. Do it with gentleness and respect because every conversation we have in a political realm is an opportunity for us to give a reason for the hope we have in Christ Jesus. Because we're bringing Jesus into the conversation. Number three, vote your values. Be careful. I'll get in trouble for this. Political parties are a way of life in the United States. But let me remind you, listen very carefully, our Christianity is far greater than any one political party. Okay? Is it wrong to be a part of a political party? No, you're not going to hear that. I, I have allegiances to, to a particular political party, but my politics never trump my Jesus. And so Jesus speaks to things that, listen, even my political party blows it on some of those things. And so it's choosing between the lesser of two evils at times. And so your job isn't to enter the voting booth, listen to me, not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, not as an independent, but a Christ follower. And so I'm going to go in and I'm going to vote the values of God. I'm going to vote the values of Jesus. And listen, not all issues are created the same. I'll tell you, this is a hard sermon to preach. This last week I got my property tax bill. Okay? My property tax is God is my witness, went up $1,700 dollars. Okay? $1,700. You think I was mad? No. Of course I was mad. Money doesn't grow on trees, at least not in Hinckley. I know it does here in Sugar Grove, but not in Hinckley. Okay? But can I tell you something? Taxation is not a life and death situation. And as mad as I can get, and I just want to be honest, I'm going to contest my property taxes, just that's a good Christian thing to do, okay? They raise it 1700. We're going to try to fix that But can I tell you something there are issues way more important than how much money gets taken out of my paycheck? life and death matter matters of morality are important issues and Listen, I'm gonna stand before the Lord and the Lord isn't gonna say well How much did you pay in property taxes? Well, Lord? It was really bad on my gravel road that I've got in Hinckley, okay? God's gonna say what did you do for the least of these? What'd you do there? I don't want to hear about your taxes because when I go to Jesus on the taxes, I go to Jesus and say, Jesus, my property taxes went up $1,700. And you know what he says? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Wait, Jesus? You're not helping me. Not all issues are the same. Final truth, and then I'm going to blow through the last point really quickly because I'm out of time. Trust Christ over trusting candidates we have 23 candidates right now who are running for public office including our incumbent president twenty three all of them are telling you what you want to hear all of them are telling you that they're the answer they're the hope. Conservatives got just so violently upset angry that Barack Obama had this messiah complex that either He had or was given to him that he was the hope and change that the America needed and then people were all worked up But the same people that got worked up about about Obama being the answer now I hear them saying Trump is the answer Listen to me brothers and sisters. I don't care who's in office. Jesus alone is the answer He's the answer Now, we want good men and good women in office. Yes, we want to vote. We want to help them. But never lose sight of the forest and the trees. Jesus is the answer. He's our hope. He is our redeemer. He's our king. Trust him over trusting candidates. Finally, stay positive. We know how things are going to conclude. We end up here. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise, and I'll bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare not for evil to give you a future and a hope then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart I will be found by you declares the Lord and I will restore you fortunes and gather you from all nations and all places from where I've driven you declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile here's the thing and I'll close very quickly No matter who's in the White House, no matter who has the majority in Washington, D.C., no matter how many Supreme Court justices we have, listen to me, you and I never have to fear. We never have to weep at the end of an election. We never have to go, oh, what's going to happen now? Because no matter if there's an elephant or a donkey in the White House, God is still on his throne. And we can have hope in that because God has plans for us. And notice these plans share two things. Number one, write these down and we'll close. Number one, God is in control. God is in control. In your politics, never forget God is in control. And never forget, God is in charge. Notice all the times God says, I, 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 not Nebuchadnezzar, not the exiles, not the Babylonians. He's not concerned about any of that. He says, I am the one who has the king in his hand and the king goes wherever I want him to. And so we can have trust that no matter how bad culture gets, no matter how difficult our political landscape becomes, for Christians, we have hope and we have a future because we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's because of that blood that we have hope that one day, no matter how dark and bad things get, Jesus is always in control and he's always in charge.